Um, yes, so hi, um, thanks for coming, thanks for organising. Um, so I work on a large-scale project at the University of Warwick. We have a website, peopleshistoryNHS.org, where we've been collecting public memories, and people are often surprised. Um, they say, oh, will this just be an unproblematic celebration of the NHS? But I think a lot of people here won't be surprised that actually maybe the majority of memories get, we get are quite critical and quite... Um, giving kind of complex, complex views of the NHS, so it is worth signing up and seeing um, how the public, what they would like to change about NHS policy. And more broadly, our thinking is, is about um, the multiple meanings inscribed on the NHS over time and in different places. So to get at that, we've run um, a lot of research, archival research, oral history research, but we've also run a lot of different events with um, museums, um, with hospitals, um, and with policy groups as well. And the starting point um, for my talk is actually from one of these public events um, in South Wales in June 2017, um, St. Fagans Museum, a national museum for Wales, um, where we asked members of the public to write on nurses' uniforms, um, which inscribed a much better response than when we asked people to just write on books. I think there's something subversive for people about scribbling on a uniform. Um, but one participant, so the strongest theme from what people wrote was that um, the NHS was a Welsh invention, which is interesting in itself in terms of kind of memory. And we talked earlier about kind of thinking about um, the foundation moments and when people remember it and when they don't. Um, but a kind of secondary theme from our analysis of the nurses' uniforms was this idea that our project could potentially be condemning the NHS to history books and that the NHS should not be um, a historical phenomenon alone. So this kind of idea actually that Sally raised about is the NHS now in a kind of perpetual crisis is definitely informing the public view um, and some people are seeing the historical interest in the NHS as even accelerating that kind of decline. So it raised for us a really interesting series of questions about the relationships between history and policy and activism and the role of history in shaping the world that we want to see and in celebrating, criticising, condemning, complexifying our view of public institutions. And more broadly, um, the points that I want to make today are that kind of throughout the post-war period, if we look at activist work and if we look at public work, it so often prefigures, reshapes and represents broader cultural shifts and political shifts in attitudes towards the NHS, often through the media, also through new social media work. And given this, therefore, analysis of activism, I think, is a really key mechanism for policymakers and also for historians to think about schisms in public opinion over time um, and to recognise the ways in which voluntary and campaign groups really mediate between public and political opinion. And we can see this if we look at the history of the NHS. So there's been a massive variety of types of activism, public opinion, interest around the NHS since its foundation and before its foundation in 1948. So in the period immediately before and following the introduction of the NHS, there were voluntary groups campaigning um, for and against the idea of nationalised medicine. Um, John Stewart has written about the Socialist Medical Association, which was campaigning for healthcare free for all at the point of access in one system or another from at least 1930. Andrew Seaton has looked at the Fellowship for Freedom in Medicine, which is a really interesting group founded in 1948. And they said that the NHS was an economically dangerous bureaucratic machine that could crush medical independence and push the whole country towards dictatorship. It's always useful to remember dissent in terms of the kind of public love for the NHS today. 
This activism reflected, but also actually played a really important role in reshaping um, the proposed debates and disagreements in policy and the BMA, which are more recognised about the reach and the uses of nationalised medicine, what it meant in terms of the roles of the state, state welfare. We heard this morning about how state welfare does have a much longer history than this, and this is just a kind of moment of high visibility and of tension about what should the state be doing, where's the spending going. This kind of debate continues, and in the 1950s and the 1960s, work by Alex Mould has shown that activism around the NHS tended to focus on user involvement um, and on pushing towards patients having more rights, more information, more choices in the NHS. And again, these kind of activist agendas or voluntary organisation agendas reflected broader changes in NHS policy, but actually also, as Alex Mould has shown, played a really important role in, in driving these changes as well. Continuing with a whirlwind kind of tour through the decades, um, in the 1970s, activism around the service changed again. And so, in part in response to changes associated with the new hospital plan for England and Wales of 1962, this looked to standardise the capacities of hospitals across regions and to centralise small local hospitals into large district general hospitals, which came with an idea of um, specialisation. On the converse side, it meant that a lot of small local hospitals were earmarked for closure, so a lot of small campaign groups emerged accordingly, and there's a list of some of the London ones here. And the groups organised protest marches, work-ins, occupations, and other forms of collective action, and their significance often spanned a lot kind of beyond the small membership numbers that they had, because they were often very much fortified by local communities. They'd organise a sit-in in a hospital. Members of the public would come and deliver food and drink to patients and staff um, as hospital work tried to go on despite this massive unrest. So again, this kind of campaigning, it reflected political change and the shifts in terms of hospital management, the drive towards economic nationwide planning, but it also really provides a fruitful way to look at gaps and biases in terms of these political agendas. So campaign groups, for example, sprung up to challenge the idea that women's hospitals and women's services were the first to face cuts. So the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital had a large campaign associated as one of the only um, hospitals fully ran only for female patients and by female staff. There was massive debates through the 80s about the idea that cervical screening would be a service that wouldn't be extended or would be cut and the unequal um, relationships to that for various demographic groups. And campaign groups also made very detailed comparison of regional breakdowns and they highlighted disparities in the way that funding was often cut between urban and rural and the north and the south um, in massive disparities that obviously remain very present today. And looking at these activist groups also reflects changes in cultural practice, um, so in different types of politics, low politics, you could call it, um, and also in representations of the publics, because activists position their tactics very much as products of the time. So supporting um, a campaign in Bethnal Green, the artists who produced these posters, um, which I've been showing, said that mass support can wield the most power. Dr. Jean Laurie, leading the campaign against the closure of the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital, which I mentioned, said that demonstrations had to be made these days to affect change. So looking at these groups, again, is revealing gaps in terms of overarching ideas of power and politics. Their operation, their statements, are showing the ways in which politics and power at Westminster, in hospitals, in the cabinet, in the medical profession, at all of these different levels, even amongst community leaders, all of these types of politics are shifting. 
The groups felt, these kind of voluntary groups that I'm talking about, in a way in the 1970s and maybe particularly in the 1980s, were feeling increasing um, confidence, and particularly in their partnerships with the media, which were very much growing, and they were increasingly challenging political decisions. They felt confident, at least from their side, um, that these kind of active types of protest um, and the occupation of public, urban, civic spaces, shared spaces of vulnerability, shared space of health, um, would be encouraged by broader publics and would lead to political change. Um, this obviously was not always the case, and they had varying kind of levels of influence and change that I think it's worth looking at. So the nature of campaigning around the NHS changed again in the 1980s, and particularly reflecting the election, the policies of Margaret Thatcher. This period witnessed the first development of national campaigns in defence of the whole NHS, for example, Hands Off Our NHS, National Health Emergency, NHS Unlimited. These groups were fundamentally new because they sought to defend the NHS as a whole, as an ideal, as a concept. And the emotional attachment to our NHS, which we see today, very much developed in the 1980s, um, alongside kind of accompanying popular merchandise, which is always a symbolic kind of area to look at. So there's balloons, badges, car stickers, t-shirts, all saying hands off the NHS from this period. And a lot of campaigners previously looking at local groups begin to tour the country and try to be more national at this stage. So again, it's the kind of vision that we see, a politics that we saw in the Olympics opening ceremony of 2012, where we saw NHS staff dancing around, um, dressed in a kind of ahistorical nostalgic vision of a 1950s nurse, and they were dancing around a torchlit acronym, NHS. And by looking at these activist groups, we see when this type of public feeling around the NHS developed, um, and that perhaps it's newer than the organisation itself. The idea of loving the NHS and the NHS didn't necessarily always evolve hand in hand. Why is that the case? Again, we kind of see that the idea, the vision today of the NHS is apolitical, which campaigners might try to push, um, and which many politicians try to push. Obviously, of course, has deeply political roots, um, like everything, but deeply political roots actually in quite kind of anti-Thatcherite left-wing politics. And again, the campaigning of these groups reflected a new type of politics and political action, um, and new relationships between public voluntary sector and political sphere. So notably, these new groups of the 1980s tried to construct a new form of information-based campaigning. There was rebranding um, in terms of being an information centre or an information collective. The Women's Health Information Centre Collective um, talked about providing accessible, appropriate and informed health education for women. The London Health Emergency starts to produce fact sheets um, and to use government statistics to analyse and critique change in the NHS. This kind of information-based ca campaigning um, doesn't entirely replace protest, um, but it does become a bit influential, and reports by these campaign groups are very much picked up, particularly by Labour members of Parliament in opposition during debate. Um, and London Health Emergency in particular begins to receive more and more um, media attention, and again, the partnerships um, between different media organisations and voluntary sector becoming really, really powerful in these decades. And again, this kind of information-based campaigning reflects um, and drives broader changes, um, indicators about performance and waiting lists being introduced into the NHS, and parallels also, I'd be a bit cautious, but I think there's some parallels in terms of links about evidence-based policy and medicine in this period as well. So again, looking at campaigning is very revealing. Um, it shows the kind of terrains through which people made policy in modern Britain, and it shows the types of expertise um, which were valued the types of expertise that people hoped would be valid. 
Um, and subsequent changes, likewise, the rising use of petitions, the changing use of social media, um, kind of shifts from focus on the NHS towards broad issues of welfare and welfare um, states can all really well be seen by looking at campaign groups. So with all of this in mind, these are the kind of thinking behind why my project's been engaging a lot with campaigners, um, trying to analyse their views and their beliefs. Um, and by campaigners, we've kind of engaged on two levels. So on one level, we've engaged with quite kind of casual campaigners. So I work with museums, hospitals, history societies, and through our website, we've engaged with people who might self-identify as campaigners, but they've perhaps signed one online petition, quite a low level of campaigning, or been on one march. Um, I've also been engaging um, with quite sustained activists who have been um, active for multiple decades or who run um, kind of health emergency groups. Um, and I've undertaken oral history interviews with representatives of those groups um, and also helped them to deposit their archives at the Modern Record Centre in Coventry. Um, I also ran a survey which gained 175 responses and the breakdown slightly is there. And I just briefly highlight the way in which this engagement has revealed two kind of key facets of NHS campaigning, both of which I think speak to the positives, but also the challenges of engaging with activists in historical and policy work. So the first key, work, key kind of theme that really came out of this um, engagement was about the significance of the local in terms of any vision of the National Health Service. And um, so NHS campaigning, like all campaigning, like all politics, is so deeply locally inflected. The culture of campaigning, which I encountered in my case studies in London and Leeds, were incredibly different. Um, in part, it was in response to the charismatic leaders who drove each case study, who drove quite different modes of engagement, but it also reflected the kind of civic um, textures of both spaces. So an example which I really like from Leeds um, is a memory of one campaigner from the 1980s, um, which is really a period of street theatre and stunts in NHS campaigning. Um, and a lot of stunts are actually in common from London and Leeds, so in both places campaigners were staging funerals for the NHS in this time. Um, but in Leeds as well, as you can see, there was some really specific activism, so the Leeds General Infirmary and then the military-themed um, stunts reflected a local hospital, um, and the use of the symbol of the owl to pursue Robin Cook um, and to kind of threaten him in a non-threatening animal metaphor, um, again, was a kind of local, a very local use of campaigning, um, just as a funny example. So on the one hand, that's something really useful um, to get at through engagement, but at the same time, this really drove a very fundamental tension within NHS campaigning, um, and this was kind of driven even further in the early 1990s when two reports by the King's Fund and the Tomlinson Inquiry lobbied for the closure of several of London's hospitals, theoretically to be replaced by primary and community care. This really increased divides in the activist community as campaign groups based in London um, began to argue that it wasn't London, but actually Liverpool, Manchester, or Newcastle, whose hospitals were overfunded. And this got a little bit personal um, with kind of Bernard Tomlinson, the chair of the government inquiry, being attacked as a man from the northern region. So I'll come back to these divides. And the second key point that I learned from um, my engagement about activism was very much about the significance of generation and age in shaping the type of activism around the NHS. So the vast majority of my survey sample um, were kind of baby boomers, 65 to 90%, depending on how you define baby boomer. Um, but this also came out in my qualitative analysis. You can see on these quotes that older participants really felt that younger participants might have lost a sense of radicalism in their NHS campaigning, or that they might be more difficult to engage. Um, many also felt that they might have a special kind of connection with the NHS because they grew up with it and they were born in the same year or a similar era. 
younger participants, um, while quite limited in my sample, but many said that they felt that older campaigners knew each other, they'd worked together for decades, and they had a kind of cliquey, exclusive atmosphere. Um, and others felt that their focus was too limited um, on the local and on the specific, rather than on broader questions of social justice and change. So this leads me to my concluding um, thoughts. So I think that it's clear um, that changes in activist politics and cultures reflect changes in politics more broadly, and that this can be a, a, a useful way to understand changing relationships um, between types of expertise and politics. Further to this, I think it's also clear that engagement by historians, academics, policymakers can help us to productively further understand these changing kind of relationships. Um, activist politics are not always in the archives, they're not always documented at all. They're often within popular memory, and activists themselves feel that they have more pressing, more interesting things to do than to create their memories or their thoughts in the styles of memoirs that we see around politicians. And the press, likewise, are creating images of activists in a very specific way, um, and not always taking the kind of oral history and qualitative approach that we would like as academics studying the period. So I think we can learn a lot from the memories, approaches, beliefs of these campaigners. But I would note that we see problems and difficulties emerging um, with what we do, with what we learn from this kind of engagement. Um, so notably, um, I noted that two key points came from my own research with campaigners, and this was about factionalism, distinctions, discrepancies amongst campaigner communities in relation to region and in relation to age. These disagreements reveal a lot about campaigning and politics in the modern period. But at the same time, there's a question of how to treat this information, and particularly if it's only revealed as a result of quite a nurturing, trusting research relationship between activist and historian. I think it's potentially the case that we can't just pretend in this kind of engaged relationship that our role is neutral um, and that historical work is only documenting tension. I think we're also kind of bringing it out and we're releasing, we're unfurling, we're reminding people of tensions from the past and tensions which remain very current and divisive and activist and in broader local communities today. So the responsibilities of the historian become incredibly complex in this process and involve renegotiating a position that we feel comfortable with as researchers um, and as people in local communities as well. I don't have any answers on that actually. Yeah, I'll leave it be. Thank you.